You're listening to the Deconstructing Success podcast. I am your host, Tima Alhaj. Have you ever wondered what happens behind closed doors when it comes to real success? I know I have, and this is exactly why this show was created. I have an insatiable desire when it comes to learning from the best in the world and an obsession with how successful people think, operate and execute. I want to know what sets these people apart from the average person. Each week, my focus is to have intimate conversations with successful CEOs, founders, athletes, experts, and leaders that have created extraordinary levels of success in their own lives. My goal is to ask the right questions whilst deconstructing their success process, their mindset, their life philosophy, and how they continue to achieve success. I want this information to be actionable for my listeners so you can achieve the success you desire and create your dream life. If you are hungry to grow and evolve to your full potential, then continue listening and subscribe as I deconstruct success from some of the greatest minds and the most inspirational individuals in the world. This week on Deconstructing Success, I interview Javon McCormick, who is the CEO of Scribe Media. Javon is a true hustler. Looking at the challenges and trauma that he faced as a child, you would believe that he had every reason not to succeed. Javon was born the mixed-race son of a drug-dealing pimp father and an orphaned single mother on welfare. He was raised in the slums of Dayton, Ohio, and he suffered incredible abuse and racism and had multiple stints in the juvenile justice system. He barely graduated high school and has no college degree. A little bit about Javon. He started by scrubbing toilets and he hustled his way into better opportunities. Eventually, he found incredible success in the banking and mortgage industry, and he was on top of the world. And then the mortgage industry fell apart. He lost his job and literally all of his money. He had to borrow from his friends to make rent, and he was nearly back to where he started, which was nothing. But this time, he had something that he did not have growing up in the slums of Dayton, the knowledge of what it takes to succeed. Javon used his setback combined with what he learned as the springboard for him to reach even bigger heights, eventually becoming president of two multi-million dollar companies. You will notice that in the interview I refer to Javon McCormick as JT McCormick. At the time, Javon was still using the name JT. There is a bit of history as to why Javon edited his name so that he could fit in the corporate world and using the name JT. The link to the article will be in the show notes for you to have a read, but I'm going to read an excerpt of the article that he wrote as to why he decided to reclaim his name Javon. This is what Javon said. For corporate America to be truly diverse and inclusive, we must instead edit our organizations to better fit individuals. That means acknowledging, respecting, and valuing the individual histories and experiences of each team member, rather than asking people to erase what makes them unique for the sake of everyone else's comfort. 
So I'm reclaiming my name, Javon, because it's no longer about me. It's about those coming after me and the belief that one day they'll work alongside lots of Javons and not just JTs and won't find it the least bit surprising. As you can see, Javon is an incredibly inspiring man and this is why I had to, absolutely had to interview him for the podcast. JT, thank you so much for coming onto my podcast. As I was saying earlier, I'm incredibly honored for you to come along and spend some time with me today and really share your story. And we already touched on this as well, but just to give the audience some context as to how I came across your work, which I cannot believe I've you know, sometimes you come across people like you and you just think, how did I not know about this person before? How did I not know about you, you know, two, three, five years ago? I don't know how that didn't happen, but sometimes things just happen in their own time. And I came across your work through Don Wetrick, through his innovations class, and you had some incredible things to share. And I'll definitely uh, include that link in the show notes. But you touched a lot about touched a lot about um, opportunity and really looking at the opportunities that we all have as humans in the time that we live in and things that we've had for a long time. But you talk a little bit about how you know there's a bit of that lazy culture and and you talked a little bit about McDonald's and what you would do there if you had to rebuild yourself. We'll definitely touch on the business aspect, but you are an incredible human. Your story is so incredibly inspiring. You've written a book called I Got There. And I honestly felt as though I was reading a therapeutic diary that you had written personally to yourself. And they were self-reflections and there were so many touch points throughout the, the story where you just had a growth mindset from such a young age. And I find that incredible. And your awareness was unbelievable. And everything that you had experienced honestly, it felt like I was watching a movie in my head and I wouldn't be surprised if, if your story will become a movie one day. And just to let the audience know, you're the CEO and president of Scribe Media, which is amazing. And you recently published a book with David Goggins. I can see it in the back background there as well. So um, I'll stop talking now, but um, <laughs> I'm just such a huge fan of your work and everything you stand for. So um, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you when I was reading your story, I was really curious to know, what did you want to be when you grew up? Wow. Well, first, let me back up a bit, Tim. But first, incredibly humbled, flattered. I, I sincerely appreciate all the kind words you just laid out. That was a hell of an introduction. And it, it was one of those introductions where you stop and say to yourself, okay, who is she talking about? And so I, I, I truly uh, appreciate that. And to answer your question directly, what did I want to be when I grew up? Tema, I, I won't sugarcoat this, alive is, is all I wanted to be. I, I never thought that I would make it to the age of 25. And I remember vividly when I turned 25 years old, I was almost lost as if I didn't know what to do because I never expected to make it to, to 25. So as a kid, I, I never really had any dreams or goals. It, it was survival. You know, mo most people live life. My mother and I were surviving, and so it was it was a day by day. And and you know you hear the phrase day by day, but literally it was an hour by hour, day by day life 
for, for me as a child. And I remember um, it was in one of your interviews where you said, I think it was at the age of eight, that you said you're never going to be in a position in life where you don't know what to do. And I'd love to know where that awareness came from. I mean, at eight, that's, that's a pretty strong statement to make. It was it was a harsh lesson, and and I, you know, I'll, I'll preface this with much of what I'm about to say is very disturbing and graphic. One of my dad's prostitutes, when I was six, seven, eight years old, she used to force me to go down on her, and when I didn't do it correctly, she would slap me in the face and punch me in the head and tell me to do it correctly. And I was six, seven, and eight years old. So what does do it correctly mean? I, I didn't, I did not know. And I remember at eight years old, just finally thinking to myself, okay, I am never going to be in a position where I don't know what to do. I, I'm going to make sure I, I learn, I understand, because I was so confused. I never knew what do it right meant. So the positive, because I choose to find the positive pieces, even in negative experiences. But the positive that came from that is I developed perfectionism. Everything I did, I wanted it to be perfect. I I wanted to operate on the level of perfection. That was the positive that came from that. The negative that came from that is we all know there's no such thing as perfect. So I was always chasing a ghost. And I remember specifically someone said to me, there's no such thing as perfection. And my response was, I may never touch perfection, but damn it, I'm going to get close enough to smell it. And it was very profound because it it really helped me in my career. But I was literally chasing a ghost that you just can't, there's no such thing as perfect. And I I have to admit, JT, um, like even when you just expressed and shared that story again, it honestly it just breaks my heart. It really, really does, especially now that I'm a parent as well and, and my daughter's eight. So it just, I have, I have to be honest, like I felt so angry for you. I felt angry and so hurt when I came across this information and, and I'm a complete stranger. And I just wonder, you know, you wrote this book for your children and I know that this was one of your original goals for writing this book and you weren't really planning on going um, out publicly. Now, your children are quite young. How do you think they will respond to really learning where you've come from and all of these things that have happened in your life? You know, I, you know, that, Tim, I, I wrote the book for them. I never intended for this book to be public. I never wanted to share it with the world. In fact, when we were doing the book, I, I had mentioned, I said, look, I only want five copies. <laughs> I just needed a legacy piece for my great, great grandchildren. My goal is when I do share it with them at the ages of maybe 12, 13 years old is when I'll have them read the book is that they have a perspective of what their father went through to accomplish the the lifestyle that we have, but to also understand the work ethic, the positivity that, that I still walk around with. Because I would not change the things that I went through as a, as a child, none of it. The only There's only two things that I would change from my past. One, I would have very much liked my mother to have more money so she didn't have to struggle as much. That's one. Two, 
I would have changed what three of my half brothers and sisters went through. They, they went through hell and back with, with their childhood in, in, in many ways worse than mine. Those are only two things that I would change. I would not change anything that I went through, the, the sexual molestation, the abuse, the neglect. I wouldn't change any of it because I chose not to be a victim to it. And I chose and still choose to see the positive aspects of my childhood. Because I grew up in such chaos, it has just been a, such a blessing for me in business. You know, income statements, balance sheets, they're not that stressful when you consider, okay, I went to bed hungry. So, you know, it's, it's a different perspective for me given my childhood and, and what real stress is in life. And just to put things into context for those that don't know much about your story. So your mother was a single mother and she was also an orphan child. So she actually grew up in one of those traditional orphanage institutions. And I remember you were saying that when she was 17, she was basically said, here's some money. I think it was like around $20. Now go off and, and live your life. And your mother sounds like a real survivor. She really, really does. And your father was also a pimp and a drug dealer. And this is where, you know, what I was saying earlier on, it, it really felt like a movie, you know, when, when you know, you're, you're reading about your life and it's something that you would definitely see in a movie. So what was it like to grow up in that environment? And, and I know you've mentioned it as chaotic and and all of those sorts of things. Did you ever at one stage as a child ever think to yourself, is this, is this okay? Is this normal? Can I tell people about my life and what I'm going through? What was it like to sort of live that kind of life? You know, you, you put it out there, Tim. Yes, my, my father was a black man. He was a pimp and a drug dealer. He fathered 23 children. My mother was an orphan, just as you said. She grew up in an institutional orphanage, and, and you nailed it. They gave her $20, a small suitcase, and they said, there's the world. Good, good luck to you. I, I don't know where my last name comes from. My mother was given that last name in the orphanage, and she gave me her last name. So we walk around to this day, and I don't know where McCormick comes from. But to answer your question directly, in many ways, I didn't think twice about my childhood because you don't know what you don't know. That's the surroundings I was around. There was other poverty. There were other kids that were abused and neglected. There were kids that were left by themselves at, at, at times. So I only knew my surroundings. And you, you adapt and you take your surroundings for what they are and you make the most of them. And, that, and that's what I did my best as, as a child. But you did, I didn't know anything different. I, you know, I, I've said this before, Tim, as a child, and as a, as a kid, the three avenues that I knew that you could get out of the hood was drug dealer, athlete, or rapper. And I sucked at all three. So, so I, there, there was, that, that's all I knew. I, I did not know of the fourth option. No one told me about entrepreneurship. No one told me about business or you could be a wealth advisor, a financial planner, an attorney. I knew none of that. So... You know, all I knew was what I grew up around and, and you, you do the best to make, to make the most of what you have. And what was your mother like uh, when you were a child? Very loving. If, if I had nothing else for the first nine years when I was actually with my mother, yes, we struggled. Yes, we went to bed hungry at times. Yes, the electricity was cut off at times. I, I make the joke, Tema, we never had these four things at the same time. Water electricity, 
food or money. We never had all four of those at the same time. We were always missing one. And in most cases, we were missing two. But you know what? I, I knew my mother loved me. You know, she, there was someone that said, I love you. There was someone that gave me a hug. And for the first nine years when I was with my mother until I, I went off to live with my dad, I knew I was loved. Yes, it was harsh. My mother was treated very cruel because she had a mixed race son. She was often, and, and I apologize if you need to edit this out, but my mother was continuously called nigger lover because she had a child by a black man. It was harsh for me as a child growing up. I was always called Oreo cookie, chocolate vanilla swirl, zebra, half breed. So my, my childhood was harsh. It, it was very, very harsh. But my mother always did her best. She tried to make the most uh, with what she had. And although she fell short at times in, in feeding me and being able to provide, all I knew from my mother was to keep going. And the positive I take from my mother was definitely, I, I just have a nonstop attitude because she had no choice. She had to keep going. She had a child. She had to do her best to feed. And, and it's interesting. I'll share this last piece, Tima. My view on women is very different than, than most because my view of strength comes from a woman. I did not have a father figure that showed me what it was like to be a man. So I was raised by a single woman. And now that I have two daughters, I have a completely different respect and view of the strength of a woman versus I do for a man. I love that you brought that up because that was definitely one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. And I have so much respect for you because of the fact that you are so supportive of women and especially in leadership roles. And, uh, and I know that that's something that you're very passionate about. So thank you so much for bringing that up. And, and one thing that I do find really interesting because um, you would have definitely had a lot of your negative, you know, being sexually abused, um, there were a lot from women, you know, going into a relationship and get, getting married and having children. Was that really challenging for you to be able to trust somebody with, with you completely and, and have children with them? I mean, I, I was trying to put myself in your shoes and that would have been a really challenging thing. I, I, I appreciate you bringing that up to me. And, and the reason why is because Many people will read the book or they'll, they'll read the stuff that, that I post on LinkedIn and, and, or they look at the success that I've had and everyone wants to talk about that. But so much what's unspoken is I went through hell in relationships. I was a monster. I did not know how to conduct myself. I did not know how to treat women. I was not respectful. I was not kind. And until I met my wife, which we've been together now for eight years. This is the first healthy relationship I've ever had. And it, even with, to, to your point on the, uh, the, the sexual, sexual abuse, it was just a year and a half ago, or actually a little over a year, that the details of my sexual abuse came out. And I'll share this with you. My wife and I, uh, Christmas 2017, we're on the couch, we're watching a movie, and my wife looks over at me and she goes, hey, why have you never allowed me to initiate sex? 
and I didn't have an answer. And I, and normally I got an answer for everything. And so, and so I said to her, I go, I don't know. Let me think about that. Two weeks later, I come back to her and said, Hey, Hey, I, I know why. And she goes, you know why, what? And I said, your question, why I never let you initiate sex. And that's when I broke down and I said to her, you know, when I was a child, here's what happened to me. One of my dad's prostitutes did this to me. And it wasn't until that moment, Timma, that I realized when I look back on my, my first 40 years of life, I had never allowed any woman to initiate sex with me. And I could trace it all back to that, that moment because that control was just something I couldn't handle. So it, it's been a struggle. It's not been all roses and, and unicorns in, in relationships for me. But fortunately for me, I've got a, a phenomenal wife. I, I love my wife. I love knowing who I'm going home to at night. My, my four children, I, I have an incredible life. And as I said to someone the other day, I wake up blessed every day because I got a wonderful wife and four beautiful, healthy children. That's so true. And you have always seemed as though you have had a grateful attitude towards things. Uh, you've never really seen yourself as a victim. And you have often also said where uh, you think of people that are going through really, really tough times where, you know, especially if they're going through cancer and they're literally fighting for their life. And you've said, well, all I have to do is get up at 3.45 in the morning and just make the most of my day. I mean, that for me, that really resonated with me because, you know, we all have our days where, you know, you question things and you're tired or you just, there are things that you just don't want to do. But that's definitely something that I have now included in my own internal dialogue because that's such a great way to look at things. All you have to do is just get up and make the most of your day. So that's just such a positive way to look at things. And why have you never seen yourself as a victim? You know, I, I say this to people. One, I, I, I for, for me, and I, I apologize. No, I don't apologize if I offend anybody. It's just my attitude. I find the victim mentality. I despise it. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. If someone's caught in a drive-by shooting, you're a victim of a drive-by shooting. You didn't expect that. If you got caught in a hit-and-run car accident, that's a victim. You didn't expect that. I had a challenging childhood. I went through some things. But it was my childhood. It's the past. I can't change it. I don't see myself as a victim. One can lay in bed, put the covers over your head and, and, and lay there for a week and ask, why me? Why me? Why me? It does not change anything. But I can change the next hour, the next day, week, month, year. I, I can't change my, my past. So why sit and ask myself, why, why, why? It, it, it's not going to change anything. So... To me, why not focus on the things you can change? And, and to your point about mindset, yes, you, you're right. We're, we're all human. We have those days that are more challenging than others. But I truly believe this when I say it. Even the worst sexual molestation encounter I had with, with my dad's prostitute does not compare in my mind to the thought of a family standing on the, the banks of Syria, considering getting on a blow-up raft to cross the Mediterranean Sea just to try to escape their country. On my worst day, I've never had to face that. 
there's people right now trying to cross the border from Mexico into the United States for an opportunity. At the end of the day, through all the horrific things I went through as a child, damn it, I was still born in this country and opportunity is everywhere. So I never, ever consider myself a victim. It really is. It's just so incredibly inspiring. I, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And when you were writing your book, I remember you were saying that you hadn't spoken to your father for about 30 years, and I think he passed away when you were writing the book. If you were given the opportunity to speak to him, would there be anything you could that you'd want to say? You know, the, the only thing... <laughs> I, I, I will try to tell you the brief version of this story. So when I was a kid, on those rare occasions my father would pick me up, my, I would always hear my father tell this story about how the only difference between him as a drug dealer and pimp and the CEO of Budweiser was our government chose to make his drug legal to make his profession legal. And I would always hear my dad tell this story. He'd tell it to me and my siblings. He'd tell it to his friends. The only thing that made my father different from different from the CEO of Budweiser was our government chose to make one of the drugs legal. If there was one thing I would have liked my father to have seen was I was on the cover of a CEO magazine and on the cover of the magazine was the Heisman Trophy winner, Bo Jackson, the uh, four-star general, General Petraeus, the billionaire hedge fund person, uh, Leon Cooperman, and myself. And right above me, Timma, was the CEO of Budweiser. I would have liked my father to have seen that magazine. And I'm man enough to admit I cried when I saw it. Because I was man enough to to say, wow, okay, well played, dad, well played. I, I felt like he either had a hand in that or he saw it or whatever. But, you know, that maybe, you know, the second only to that, it would, I would have liked my father to see my family. But it's sad because I don't know that that really would have meant anything to him. My father had 23 children. He didn't take care of any of us. So, you know, some people have asked me, oh, wouldn't you have liked your father to have seen your family? Eh. I, I, he didn't value family, obviously. So, but I do believe he would have valued seeing his son on the cover of that magazine with the CEO of, of Budweiser. You know, I got goosebumps as you were saying that story, and it really is a bittersweet moment. And there is so much truth to what your dad was actually saying because I've always been a big believer in not that I condone drug dealing in any way, but I do believe that drug dealers have an entrepreneurial mindset. They really, really do. They're just selling, obviously, something completely illegal and can ruin people's lives. I mean, put that aside. But the actual fundamentals of of the dealing itself and how to get, you know, your clients and, and not get caught and all of those things, all the tactics that they would have to implement, that is a real entrepreneurial mindset. So do you think that you being exposed to that kind of world Early on, you know, you sort of learned um, some of these behaviors and applied them into your own life? Very, very much so. And, and I've said this, and, and some people have been rubbed wrong by, by me saying this, but so much of my communication skills, I learned from my father. Everyone loved him. Everyone talked to him and agreed, disagree, hate it, dislike it, whatever, there's a certain communication that goes into convincing a woman to stand on a corner and sell her body and you take all the dollars. 
And so I watched that. And so, yeah, by, by all means, so much of my childhood, I figured out, okay, how can I take these pieces of things that I learned and take them into the, the professional world? And Tim, I'll back up a place here. I've really rubbed people the wrong way with what I'm about to say here. But when you talked about drug dealing, there's a lot of people that really dislike when I say this, but damn it, if you look at it, it's the truth. Every drug dealer knows that the first rule is the money is in the comeback, meaning they will give the drug addict the drug for free because they know they're going to keep coming back and, and paying for it. Well, last time I checked, that's also what pharmaceutical reps do. They go to the doctor's office, they give them the drugs for free, the doctor hands it to the patient for free, then the patient becomes hooked and they want a prescription, so they keep going back for the prescription. The only difference is you've got a middleman in between there, which is the doctor themselves. So, you know, when I look at that and I look at my childhood and I look at drug dealers and I look at pharmaceutical reps, it's the same system. One's just legal. Absolutely. And, and, and just worldwide, there's a, there's a massive issue with prescription drugs. And, uh, and I love that you brought that up because I have the same perception of that. And if you just look at it just in the basic principles of just how businesses operate, every business, if they run it correctly, you know, they will always offer something for free in the hope that they will get a return on that investment over time. So um, I, I actually find this whole topic really very fascinating. And like I said, put the actual product aside, you know, the, the mentality behind it all is really, really intriguing. And sometimes I wish, that especially the younger generation, if they are in that drug dealing space, if they only knew how intelligent they are, and how much more worth they really have as human beings if they applied those skills into something else. If only they really understood the power of what they're actually achieving, if only they really understood that, it could potentially change their life and many other people's lives as well. I mean, I know somebody quite close to me that was in that space and that was something that I would always say to him, like, you're actually a smart person. You think you're not smart, but you're smart you know, for you to do this and survive all these years says a lot about who you are as a human. And that's something that really, I feel very, very close to that particular topic. So thank you so much for sharing that. And, uh, you were living the American dream. You basically built yourself up from, from scratch. And I love interviewing people like you because nothing was handed to you. Really. You created every opportunity and took every opportunity by you know, with, with your own hustle mentality and you really created a life for yourself and you were in the finance space for many years and you made quite a bit of money. And I'd love for you to take me back to that moment where your bank balance was, I think about $999 and then it became a million dollars. I'd love for you to take me back to that moment and just tell me what was going through your mind and how did that feel to, to see your first million dollars coming through? You know, it's interesting because no one knew other than my myself. I kept it very private and no one knew that actually I had the, the, the million dollars. But it was very, um, how, how do I say this uh, humbly? It was somewhat disappointing because when it went over to a million dollars, there was no difference between 
999,000 and a $1,000,000. <laughs> there was really no, you know, no, no confetti came down, no balloons went off. It wasn't New Year's, you know. It, so it was very, if, if I say this correctly, anticlimactic, if I pronounce that correctly. But it was an accomplishment, and I felt good about it until the day came around when I lost it all and went broke. <laughs> yes, that's right. I definitely wanted to get to that point. And you refer to yourself as being negative broke, which is a really interesting concept. And um, and so how did you rebuild yourself? Because these are the stories that everybody, we all love these stories. We all want to know how did somebody pick themselves up again and replicate that wealth again? How did you do that? So, so to, to your point, yes, I, I was negative broke. And what I meant by that was I actually had to borrow money from my stepfather and my best friend to, to pay my rent. I, I remember I went to the convenience store one night. It was 10 o'clock at night and I had $10 of, in quarters in, in my hand. And I walked in, I put them on the counter and I said, Can, may I have $10 on number seven? And I remember walking back to my car, just thinking to myself, wow, how did I get back here again? Now, let me pause there because you remember I talked about, I always find the positive in a negative situation. The positive for me when I went broke was I already knew what it was like to be broke before. I, I was good friends with poor. We, I, I grew up with, with that, with poor. We were good friends. So when I was back at broke, I didn't want to be there, but I could look broke in the face and say, hey, good to see you again. Didn't think I'd be here, but hey, how, how have you been? And I knew how to operate. I knew how to operate on nothing. And I knew that, okay, I was here before. I can get out of this again. The biggest thing that came from me being broke and making the money back, it wasn't making the money back. It was the mind shift and the self-awareness to go look in the mirror and say to myself, okay, you had a million dollars. Now you don't. What changed? Yes, you had some money. That was beautiful. What I looked in the mirror and realized to myself was, wow, you have a horrible character. You don't know how to treat women. You're not very kind. So who do you want to be going forward? Because you realize the money didn't change who you are as a person. You're st now that you're broke again, you're still the same person. You have a bad character and you're disrespectful in, in your horrible relationships. So the greatest thing... Of and what was your age? I was 30... Gosh, what, in 2007... Oh gosh, 37, 38 years old, somewhere around there. So somewhere, Tim, somewhere between 37 and 38 years old. And it, that, that was what the, the biggest piece came for me was I, I said to myself, okay, great. You can make the money again, but who do you want to be going forward? What type of man do you want to be? What do you want to be known for? And that was where I made the decision of, okay, I'm going to, just like I learned how to invest, just like I learned how to sell, just like I taught myself all these other things. Now I'm going to do my best to teach myself how to be a good person, a good human. And that, that was the moment. I, I literally remember standing in that little one bedroom apartment, standing in the bathroom mirror and having that conversation with myself out loud, not just looking at myself in the mirror, but out loud speaking with myself because I, I have this belief, Tima, 
if you can truly look in the mirror and have a conversation with yourself out loud, not just in your mind, that's a different type of introspection that you're having. Because can you lie to yourself out loud? Are you going to be honest to yourself out loud? And I, that's, that, that was the greatest thing that came for me in, in being broke. And then where did you go from there? So once you had that conversation with yourself, what was the next, next step for you? Hell, I had to find a job. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that was the first step that that happened. I ended up, I I did find a job. And from there, I I kept that job for about two years. And then I was offered the opportunity to be the salesperson at a software company. And I was the lowest paid person in the software company. And there were 13 of us. And I ended up going from the lowest paid person in the software company to becoming the president of the software company. And fortunately for me, I was surrounded by some incredible people that we were able to grow that software company from 13 people in a storage closet to offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and Monterey, Mexico. And we turned into a multi-multi-million dollar company with over 100 people. And I was just blessed and fortunate to work, work, excuse my language, work my ass off to create an, an opportunity for myself. And, and I can't say it enough. I was surrounded by some really smart people. And so over what time frame was that, was that growth period? Five years. Four, technically it was about four and a half, but five, call it five years. So, so being the lowest paid salesperson to then running a massive and, and growing a massive software and technology company. That's, that's amazing. So how did you scale the business? I'm just curious. You know, God knows as a first time president, I made a ton of mistakes, but I, I live by this phrase, Timma. We all make mistakes in life, but you only fail if you stop trying. And so I, I, I've got a ton of failed relationships, Bill, because I stopped trying. We, we broke up. We stopped trying. But I made some mistakes as a president. I've made mistakes as a CEO. I've made mistakes as a parent. I'll make some more. But we only fail if we stop trying. The way we scaled that business was we had incredibly talented people. And I was willing to do anything and everything in my position as, as sales and then as, as president. And what I appreciate the most, Tim, of you saying that, here, here's the piece that I appreciate the most. Everyone talks about how, okay, went from the lowest paid to president. Here's what a, a lot of people don't want to talk about, the sacrifice that went into it. In the five years I was at that company, I only took 11 days vacation. And why that's important is, you know this, Tima, we live in, in a culture and a society now where most people take 11 days vacation in, in Q1. I only took 11 days vacation in five years. And I can tell you what those days were for. Three were when I got married. Two were for the birth of my firstborn. One was for the birth of my secondborn. And then I took various little days here and there. And so I was willing to do anything and everything to succeed. And that's how I've treated my my whole life is I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to succeed. And I'm not embarrassed to say this, 
there is an actual photo of me in the delivery room with my wife and you can see the laptop open behind me in the picture. And some people will say, oh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Coming where I come from, I've always been willing to do everything I had to do to create a, a phenomenal life for myself. So I don't personally believe it's ridiculous. Other may, but I, I again, I, I will do anything I need to do to succeed in life. And, and the reason why you are at where you're at in your life is because you're willing to do things that a lot of people are not willing to do. You know, we all we can all have our own judgments and judge people for, you know, working too hard or being a workaholic or whatever the category is. It's just a judgment in the end because they are choosing not to live that kind of life and that's fine. That's completely fine. But I'm sure that your wife, Megan, knew who she was marrying and who she was having a child with. So she was probably getting the, you know, the PowerPoint ready for you so that you could charge your laptop while she was, you know, giving birth. So she probably knew exactly what, what you would be doing in the delivery room. So, uh, so actually, I really value really hard work and work ethic and that's something for me, you know, growing up was really instilled within myself because I knew that things just don't come easy. They just don't. Even even happiness doesn't come easy. You have to work hard to feel happy and to be happy. So everything requires work. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make. Obviously, you live, you know, an incredible life. I'm sure it's not 100% perfect, but it takes work to live the life that you have. And I'm sure that you won't stop because you don't ever want to lose that life again. So am I right with that? Uh, you, you were totally correct. And, and, and you, you know that, Tima, is er, everyone's definition of success is different. You know, my mind obviously had a lot of financial components to it because of my upbringing. But success is not defined by money alone. There's many different definitions of success. You have to be the person who defines success for yourself. But you also have to understand that there is zero success without sacrifice. I don't care what it is in life. If you want success, you are going to have to sacrifice in an area. And I've always been willing to sacrifice to to succeed. And... What's really interesting is that you never ended up graduating high school or, or anything like that, but you're running a company called Scribe Media that deals with publishing books, which is almost like a bit of an irony if you look at the, the hypocrisy there, which is what I really, really love. So I'd love for you to share the story with the audience as to how this incredible opportunity came along. And I really do believe there are just things in life that happen for a reason. And your book was the catalyst to all of this. So it's, I, I, I smile at my life all, all the time, Tim. I, I was the president of a software company and, and I can't write code. Who knew? And, and so here I am, the, the CEO of a publishing company, can't tell you an adverb from a pronoun and God knows I can't spell. I, I tell people all the time, I am still waiting to meet the man or woman who created Spellcheck because they have been so influential in my career. The, the way I ended up here, Scribe, was I was at the software company and I was on a plane and I don't like to fly. I don't like turbulence. I hit a lot of turbulence. And when I got off the plane, I made it my mission that, okay, wow, if something happened to me, my children would not know my background. 
So I set out on this, this path, this goal to write my book. And I knew I couldn't write my book. So got introduced to the two co-founders of Scribe. And I, I said to them, look, I don't care if I ever sell a copy. Matter of fact, I only want five copies, as we said earlier. And the, the gentleman, the co-founder, he said, when we were wrapping up our first call, he goes, wow, man, you've built a great company here at the software company. We were having a meeting in the conference room at the software company. And I said, well, let me stop you right there. I didn't build this. This was a combination of a lot of people's effort, talent, and hard work. Not one person scales or builds a business. And I was just fortunate to be a part of this. Yes, I worked hard. Yes, I was involved. But it wasn't just me. And so when he heard that, he goes, hey, would you give us feedback on our process as you go through the book process with us and doing your book? They were a very young company. I believe they were about 12 months old at, at that point. And I said, yeah, sure. Fast forward, Timma. I started giving them feedback on their process. One thing led to another. And one day, the two co-founders said, hey, would you be the CEO of the company? <laughs> and, and I said, well... Yeah, why not? They didn't know. You know, I was looking to transition out of the software company. I wasn't passionate about it. Again, I didn't write code. So I thought to myself, wow, this is pretty cool. I would not have my book had it not been for this company. Here you have two incredible guys, two co-founders with a great idea, but they need help in scaling the business side of this. I just spent five years over here doing this. I thought, huh, plus I like their mission. I mean, how cool is this? We unlock the world's wisdom. We, we help people achieve their dreams and goals and becoming a published author. How cool is that? So, you know, that's, that's our measurement as a company. So I, I joined the company, became the, the CEO, and, and here I am. And what did they want you to do coming into the business? What, what did you bring to the table and why were they so enticed by you? You know, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm convinced when I say this, most entrepreneurs, if not all, when they start off to launch their business, build their business, it's a great idea, something they're passionate about, something they have found that, oh, wow, this could be a business. I have yet to find an entrepreneur or a business owner who started off and said to themselves, wow, I want to be responsible for operational metrics, balance sheets, income statements, hiring and firing, culture. No one starts off with that. You start off with a great idea. You wake up one day, you have seven people working with you and you say to yourself, oh shit, uh, uh, what, what am I supposed to do with this? And that's really what, what happened. You had two great guys, great idea. The business took off for them, but they had zero clue about income statements, balance sheets, operational metrics, forecasting, hiring, firing, you know, all, all those different things. They had zero clue. Well, I had just spent five years doing all that and I personally enjoy every bit of the business aspect. I am a student of business. I love business. And so it, it was just a, a great match. And it also helped as well as they said, hey, if you come over, we'd like to offer you equity in the company. So that was pretty cool as well. And so here I was, the CEO of a, of a company. And the way I viewed it, Timo, was how cool would it be to sit back and say you were number the number 13 employee at Facebook, number 
20 at Amazon or number six at Google. And I viewed this as that type of opportunity. And here we are almost three years later, we're pushing 50 people, our, our company's growing. As you said, we're, we published David Goggin's book and, and we've worked with over a thousand authors now. So that's the way I view this opportunity. And it's, it's been, I've been fortunate and blessed by it. And there might be a lot of people listening to this that are in startup phase or at a point where they are growing, but they just need help. Like you said, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that don't have all of those skills that you, that you touched on. What are the things that they can do to win people over like you to become a CEO of, of, of their own mission and vision if they're not financially able to pay somebody what they're really worth? So what can they do? Because I, I, I find that something that a lot of um, entrepreneurs may struggle with if they need help, but they just can't pay for the talent. So, so there's, there's a couple of things. And I understand this, you know, we, we're all in a battle for time. It seems like there's never enough. But everything that I have learned from business has been a bit of trial and error. And I've been the recipient of being alive during the invent of the internet. So income statements, balance sheets, quarterly earnings, operational metrics, EBITDA, all of those things were self-taught from just, okay, it's the damnedest thing. Every publicly traded company, they post their quarterly earnings, their public record. You can go and, and study their quarterly earnings. You can actually sit on their quarterly earnings call. You can't say anything or ask any questions, but you can sit in on this and, and understand forecasting, where they're going, what they're, what they're projecting. So much of that is self-taught. Yes, it is time-consuming. And if you bear with me here, Tim, I'm, I'm going to go off on a bit of a rant. Yes, it's time-consuming, but you have to decide what you're willing to sacrifice for success. So the next time, my, my advice to an entrepreneur, the next time you find yourself wanting to binge watch the Game of Thrones or you're wanting to go out and play a four-hour round of golf or you're wanting to, to watch a, a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour football game, say to yourself, okay, you know what? I got this deep dive into quarterly earnings, projections, culture, hiring, growth, scale. You never hear anybody say, you know, I spent the weekend binge studying, scaling my company. You, 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 I've yet to hear someone say that, but I got a lot of people that say they binge watch Game of Thrones all weekend. So it, it's, it's all about what are you willing to sacrifice to put into your company for the growth? And then also reaching out to people, asking questions. You, know, you can ask for everything. People will say no, but that's the worst they can say is, is no. Here, it's one of our, our culture principles is ask questions. I have built a career on asking questions because the worst thing you can tell me, Tema, is no. Maybe F no, but still no. And so those are the pieces that I would say to entrepreneurs is you've got to do the self-investment first and be willing to sacrifice, ask questions, seek guidance learn from others. I learn more from other people's mistakes than I do their successes. That's really, really great advice. And, um, and I'd love your take on, you know, with Gen Zs and, and millennials, what advice would you give them? Because I speak to a lot of Gen Zs and, uh, and I feel like there's a bit of a spectrum where there are those that 
are very secure within themselves and they're looking at the world as an opportunity. And then there are those that are really, really very confused and feel so lost. And I feel that that sense of loss is even at a deep level than what it was when I was, you know, their age with social media and, and just really where the world is at the moment. What would you say to these, to this younger generation to really give them that sense of hope that it really is up to them? So, so if, if I may, Tim, I'm going to respectfully push back here a bit. I will not use the word hope. And, and actually, there's three words that I will just, I have eliminated from my vocabulary. Hope, wish, and luck. And here's why. When I was a child and I hoped there was something to eat when I got home, it never produced anything. When I would open the refrigerator and I wished there was food in it, never produced anything. And then luck, I just completely, you know, people say, oh, the lottery winner, they're so lucky. No, they bought a ticket. And so hope and wish, I, I use the word belief. I, I believe that word pushes to execution. You can drive by and say, oh, I hope I have a house that, that, that looks like that one day. That doesn't push you to execution. But if you say, I believe I have a, I'll have a house like that one day, if you believe it, then it's going to force you to have to go do something to achieve it. And you're, you, know, you can sit back, oh, I wish I had that house or, or I wish I had that body. Wishing doesn't do anything. Going to the gym will actually change something. So for that, I, I'm big on mindset. You know this, Tema. I'm big on mindset and uh, vernacular, the words that we put into our, our, that come out of our mouth, because that's what we end up focusing on. So hope, wish, luck, I, I don't even touch those words. And for those millennials, those generations, you nailed it. Social media, my first piece of advice is life is not Instagram. People see the picture of the house, the cars, the money, and so many people feel that it's that easy. Oh, no, it's not. You've got to sacrifice. You've got to put in the work. You've got to have the belief when, when things are hard and they will be. You have to have the belief that you will come through this and you will achieve the dreams and goals that you set out for. Again, I take it back to the, the family that's standing on the banks of Syria. I've never had to face that. And so my outlook is you can truly achieve anything you want and desire, but you have to put in the work to do so. Exactly. And uh, this is the thing too, you know, with say YouTube, there are so many um, people that have created success through YouTube, but what people forget and especially the younger generation is it looks easy and a lot of people don't really show behind the scenes, but these people have skills that are not so obvious. They could be marketing skills or it could be whatever their strength is, but they're doing it so smoothly that you can't really pick up on it, especially if you're really, really young and comparing yourself and thinking that you could be the next YouTube sensation. So I just really wanted to get your take on it because I know you do a lot of work with the younger generation and that you mentor quite a few young, younger kids. Yes. And, uh, and I just well, wanted to... You know, Tim, I'm sorry. If, 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 and you nailed it. You nailed it so, so perfectly. If you look at my LinkedIn profile, it shows that you know, I became the, the president over five years. But like I said, 
No one wants to look behind the scenes, just like the YouTubers. No one wants to look behind the, the person who's become popular on YouTube. They just see that now this person has 50 million views, but they don't want to look back when this person only had two views, and, but they kept going. They kept trying. They kept hustling and grinding. And that's the part that people don't realize. No one ever wants to talk with me about when I was working at the payday loan company and at 1130 at night, I was still in the office trying to figure out how to make this thing work and, and educate myself. No one wants to talk about that. Everyone just wants to talk about how I became president or CEO. And it, but it's the work. It's the consistency. It's the effort. It's when things go bad and they will, you have to pull yourself out. And what do you say to yourself in those moments where you feel like you just can't figure something out or you feel as though it's just too hard or very, very, very challenging? What do you say to yourself? Uh, you know, this, this is for me, Tim, where I use my childhood as a true blessing. I always think back to myself and I say, okay, if I made it through that, oh, I can definitely get, get through this. And, and I'll even use my mom, for example. I'll, I'll, I'll say to myself, I remember as a child one time, I was four years old and I had an asthma attack. And my mother had to pick me up and carry me to the emergency room because there was no money, there was no car. And, you know, two in the morning, she's walking through a dark alley with her child to take me to the emergency room. So I think about those pieces in life. And I say this to others as well. If you don't have those stresses or those type of stories from your background, use someone else's. Again, I've never stood on the banks of Syria, but I do take the time and respect to realize, wow, there's a family having to make that decision. Things aren't that hard for me. I'm going to figure this out. And it's really not as hard as I'm making it out to be right now. Just a few more questions. And, and I know that you're a family man. I know that you really value family. And I'd love to know what you'd want your children to say about you. That their father, so I'm going to answer that two ways. First and foremost, I ask myself this question at least once a week. And this goes back into there's no success without sacrifice. I ask myself this question literally once a week. So 52 times a year. If I died right now, am I happy? with how I spent my time in life. And why that's important is because, again, there's no success without sacrifice. So are you okay with the things that you have sacrificed for that success? So if I die today, yes, I, I am actually okay with that because I get to sit back and say, you know what? I took my children to Disney World. My children live in a gated community. They go to private school. And I, I've provided a phenomenal life for them, but I'm still at home for bath time. I've changed diapers. I burp my children. I eat dinner with my family. And I, I have no problem getting up at 345 before they do so I can accomplish some things to be able to provide the lifestyle for my family. So I, I ask that question again what, once, once a week. I ask that to myself. Am, am I happy. And that's really to stay in balance with myself because I don't want to be so far off uh, like an Elon Musk where it's touted that he works 120 hours a week. That's ridiculous. If you got to do that every now and then, maybe one week per year, okay, I get it. You know, you got to sacrifice to put in some hours, but 
to maintain that, it's just absurd. So I would want my children to know that no matter what their dad always strived to be the best, he, to, to be the best father and husband, he could be the best leader. He could be to people. He was, he was kind, he was respectful and he was willing to admit his mistakes. That's really beautiful. And I'd love for you just to share one lesson that you've, that you learned from your childhood um, that you haven't yet shared in, in the interview today. The, the world is what you make of it. I could have easily sat back and, and I'm asked this question, JT, how did you overcome so many obstacles? Or better yet, let me say it this way, Tima. I have so many people that will tell me, JT, you had every reason to end up in prison. You had every reason not to succeed. You had every reason, blah, blah, blah. And my immediate answer to every one of those people is this. If that's the way you look at it, yes. But I've, also, I've always been willing to look at my childhood and say, you know what? I had every reason to succeed because the chaos that I grew up in has made being an adult very easy for me. And like I said, business, it's not that hard for me because I grew up in chaos. The, the stresses that, that I'll share this last piece, Tim, the stresses when I got left with my ha three half brothers and sisters and we were in that house all by ourselves, the greatest stress I've ever taken in life is every day when I woke up with my three half brothers and sisters, father was in England, the, the prostitute was gone, my mother was in Texas. The greatest stress I've ever had to take on was wondering, would the electricity be cut off? It's February here, it's cold, it's freezing outside. Will they turn off the water? We won't be able to take a bath, we won't have water to drink. And that went on for three weeks. I have never in my life faced anything more stressful than wondering each day would my brothers and sisters and I freeze or not have water. That's the stress that, that I've dealt with. And when I look at life, I, I dig back to that moment and say, okay, I can get through anything. And can we just expand on that a little bit? Because I know that there'll be people in the audience wanting to know a little bit more about that particular moment. So what was your age and how old were your um, half brothers and sisters? So, so I'll, I'll do my best not to bore anyone with the story, but I was 12 years old and we had just moved back to Dayton, Ohio, myself, my father, his prostitute, my three half brothers and sisters. Two weeks after we got back to Dayton, Ohio from Houston, my dad decided, hey, I'm out of here. I'm going to England. So my dad left. He went to England. And then I remember a Sunday afternoon, my the the prostitute that we were living with my half brothers and sisters their mother she said she was going to get a pack of cigarettes and she left and they left me with my sister who was four my other sister who was three and my little brother that was two she left and said she was going to get a pack of cigarettes and she did not come back for three weeks and I'm often asked by people, hey, when did you have your first experience in leadership? And it was at that moment when I was 12 years old when I made the decision that I wasn't going to leave my brothers and sisters because I was supposed to be in school and, and I didn't leave and I stayed with them. And no matter what, I, I was not going to abandon my brothers and sisters. And at one point, 
three days into this, we're running out of food. So I had to go down to the store and I told my four-year-old half-sister, I told her to babysit. A four-year-old, I told her to babysit the other two so I could go down to the store and steal food for us. I got back and Timma, I immediately realized, oh damn, we don't have diapers. So I had to potty train my two-year-old half-brother and I, I remember sitting him on the toilet He's crying. I'm crying. And, and I looked at him and I said, I go, look, man, I don't know what else to do. And until something comes out, this is how it's going down. <laughs> so that's how he learned to potty train. And that that moment was to this day, it's probably the hardest moment I went through, even even the sexual abuse that moment because it was so stressful. I, I did not know what would happen. I didn't know when anybody was going to come back for us. My mother was in Texas. She didn't know where I was. My father was in England. God only knew where he was. And this prostitute left us. And, and it, that, that was one of the hardest moments of my life. Are you still in contact with your siblings? So when I went back for my father's funeral, I got the opportunity to see those three half brothers and sisters. Matter of fact, the, the, my little brother that I potty trained, he's actually the one that reached out to me and let me know that our father passed away. He and I text each other at least two times a week. So I'm still in contact with him. I talked to my, my sister, the four year old that I talked about. I, I speak with her periodically. I'll, I'll send her and her children something for Christmas. And, and so every now and then we're still in contact. But me and my, my half-brother, we, we are in, we're in pretty close contact now. That's really beautiful. It's, um, it would be a really, really beautiful thing to at least have, you know, people that really understood, you know, that just that life that you all live together. And it would be such a beautiful closeness that knowing that you just have each other's back and, and uh, honestly, like I just keep getting goosebumps just thinking about your story and I'm, I'm finding it really hard to hold back the tears just, just listening to your story. I just think it's just amazing. You're just an incredible human and the fact that you just never gave up really and you were at 12 to be faced with such an incredible, incredibly difficult situation like that. I mean, having to potty train as an adult is hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. My daughter's are. <laughs> that's not an easy thing. And the fact that you could train a two-year-old how to do that, um, you should write a whole book on that. Seriously, that's a whole other industry <laughs> for you, JT. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny you say that, Tim, because I, it, it's to, to let you know that how some of those memories do carry on with me when I, you know, because I have my four children now and as each one of them, we've had to potty train them. I, I do. I always think back to that moment. And so here I, I relive that moment often because I have four children. So as much as I may want to forget it, I, I just, I can't. It was a very hard time. Oh gosh, even, even now I just sit here and I think to myself, it was so confusing, but I, I, I wasn't going to leave them. And you're going by instinct, which is a, a real, real skill. And, and I know from my own personal experience, you know, there was a time in my life where I couldn't feel my instinct anymore. It just didn't make any sense. And that instinct, that gut feeling that you had, 
that's that's an incredible skill. It really, really is because I believe that that's really what has really pushed you and helped you. One of the things, of course, one of the many things, but instinct and that that gut feeling is really what helps create success in the long term as well. And really trusting yourself because you know you were twelve. Like, what would what were you to know in terms of even changing a nappy, let alone potty train? So uh, you are just one of a kind, really JT, you really are. And I wish we were doing this interview in person. I think it would have been even a a completely different, different interview altogether. It's sometimes it's really, I find it challenging to do interviews um, sometimes through, you know, through Skype or through Zoom, but um, I really feel that you've really given us so much to learn from and you've given us so much of yourself and I'm really, really grateful for that. So Thank you so much. And um, there's just a couple more questions. Oh, goodness. I've had to like just, yeah, just had to breathe in a little bit. Um, what impact do you want to have on the world? I, you know, oh gosh, I, I greatly appreciate that question. I have a firm belief in when I, I'm speaking, I'm speaking obviously here, here in the States. I have a firm belief that we can change a, a minimum, a minimum of 30% of the lower economic community. And what I mean by that is you don't know what you don't know. One of the great things that my father ever did for me, and I don't know that he he knew he was doing this, but when we lived in, in Houston, Texas for a year, he took me through a, a neighborhood called River Oaks. It's a real exclusive neighborhood, 10, 15, $25 million homes. And I remember that was the first time at 10 years old that I saw these homes that were bigger than the project that I lived in. And one family lived there. And I remember saying to myself, you know what? I want to have one of those one day. And why that's important is you don't know what you don't know. How does a child know they can become a wealth advisor if no one ever tells them? or shows them what a wealth advisor is? How do they know they can be work at NASA, work, work at, at, at SpaceX? How do they know these things if no one ever shows them? But I'll, I'll even back up further from that, Why, where I feel that we can make change is we know here in the States that 40% of the students that graduate high school will never go to college. We know that, it's a statistical fact. But we don't even send our children out into the world with as much as a handshake. We don't teach you how to shake hands. We don't teach you attention to detail. We don't teach you how, how to do manners. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Please. We don't teach you any of those things. Hell, we don't teach you how to tie a tie. None of these things. But we send you out into the world and say, hey, go for it. So for me, where, where I want to make change, and you mentioned it in mentoring youth, is letting them know, hey, I come from where you come from. Here's what you actually can achieve in life. You can be an entrepreneur. No one ever said that word to me. I literally, I, I, Tim, I believe I heard the word entrepreneur the first time. I had to be somewhere in my mid-20s. And so how's one to know they can be an entrepreneur if I don't even know that exists. So I I have this passion, this belief that we can change the lower economic communities just by informing them of what's possible. You know, maybe we don't change everyone, 
but at least 30% just by making them aware of the possibilities. That's a really beautiful, beautiful mission. And I, I, I love that because I, I too have a, a real soft spot when it comes to the younger generation and I want to do my part as well. So I really resonate with that. So thank you for sharing that. And one of the missions for my podcast and really everything that I'm doing, and you've probably seen some of my work um, on LinkedIn to JT, is that my mission is for people to really believe that their potential is limitless because I genuinely believe that we can be whoever we want to be and construct that within ourselves, as long as we're prepared to do the hard work, which is what we've already touched on. <laughs> so what, what is your definition of limitless potential? You nailed it, Tim, truly, truly believing, believing that you can achieve whatever you want. It, it's, it's going to be hard work, but if you're willing to put in that work, that sacrifice, you can achieve what, whatever you, you want in this life. And, and that's definitely something I, I want my children to understand. And I want them to see that in their father, that there were things that I wanted to accomplish and, and I went out and accomplished them. And so, sometimes it took, okay, I can't go to the movies or I can't hang out or I can't go play golf because I have to invest this time into study, learning, growth, and understanding where I want to be in this world. So I've always been willing, again, to, to make those, those sacrifices, but limitless, truly, there, there are no limits. You can be whatever you want to be in this world. My, my daughter constantly asks me right now, Daddy, can I be the first woman president? I go, yes, ma'am, you, you can. And, and, and I say, to the, they, they have to recite this to me each day. I go, what is hard work? Hard work is greatness. What are your three things? Smart, great, and I'm a leader. How do you become smart? I have to work hard. And that is, we, we say that two, three times a day because I want them to understand there is zero success without hard work. And hard work is greatness. If you're willing to put in the work, you can achieve whatever you want. Well, I can't wait to see what your kids get up to in 10, 15 years. So I'll be following their progress for sure. So uh, where can people find you online? Where are the best places? Wow, Tim, the same place you found me. You know, I, I, I am a huge fan of LinkedIn. So that's the, the easiest place to, to find me. I actually, I say this to anyone, if someone wants to email me, I actually answer all my emails. You can email me at JT at scribemedia.com and or if you want to learn a, a little bit more about me you can go to jtmccormick.com that's the, the the website for you know when i go and speak and do different things like that but uh, the best place where i'm active is on linkedin that's amazing and people need to check out scribe media the process that you have in publishing a book just the step-by-step -step process is just incredible and uh and i'm one of these people that i one day one day i will maybe i shouldn't say one day that's like the worst analogy but i will write a book one day and uh and i will definitely be coming to you for that so um because i know how amazing you are when it comes to grammar and all of those sort of things jt so <laughs> fortunately tim i am not the person doing the writing so <laughs> there are a lot of talented 
people in the business that that take care of that. Oh, I love that. So, uh, and 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 you've been involved in David Goggins' book, which uh, which is incredible, and uh, and I'm so so happy for you and Scribe to have you know shared his story with the world because he's he too also has an incredible story. So. Thanks so much, JT. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And, and I feel, um, I just genuinely feel as though I have just really been given so many life lessons for me personally, but also for my audience as well. So thank you so much. And, and I'm really, really grateful for today. Tima, this was incredible. And I, and I say this with all sincerity. I am truly honored and, and humbled. I, I am so thankful that you you had me on and, and you and I were able to to have this moment together. I, I sincerely say that and I, I do not say that to every podcast that I'm on. So thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. Thanks, JT. Thank you, Tema. Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. At Deconstructing Success, we have so many more incredible conversations for you to download, listen to and share. Check out the links in the podcast description so that you can continue to learn, apply and evolve. We would love for you to support the show and you can do this by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or leaving a comment on your favorite platform. You can also share this episode with someone that you know who can benefit from listening to today's show. If you wish to connect with me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram and YouTube. Just type in Tima Alhaj, send me a direct message and let me know which episode you listen to. All of the links are in the podcast description. Your future success is waiting for you. Until next time, this is Tima.